I don't know, I just guess I can't totally get over it. So uh, wipe a tear if you need to. And then allow yourself to uh, simply see that video for a moment for its content. I want to ask you to think together with me for a few minutes about the idea of uh, kingdoms. See, as I worked on my message this week, I became more and more aware of and intrigued by um, humanity's captivation with, maybe we could almost say obsession with, the idea of kingdoms. From sports, to video games, to social media, to movies, from Madagascar and Jungle Book and Lion King and even Frozen, listen to how it's described. It tells the story of a fearless princess who sets off on a journey alongside a rugged iceman, his loyal reindeer and a naive snowman to find her estranged sister whose icy powers have inadvertently trapped their kingdom in eternal winter. From the innocent and fun-loving movies of Disney to the ever-popular and seemingly timelessness of Star Trek to the much less innocent Game of Thrones with its seven kingdoms. Interesting number, isn't it? Probably not a coincidence. From fairy tale to modern history to ancient history to biblical history, it is filled with the concept of kingdoms. Battles and wars and captivity, all based on humanity's obsession with kingdoms. And like I said, I, I, I see this obsession also totally reality when it comes to the Bible. Read through the Old Testament and you will see it over and over. Kingdoms, nations, people groups. Just last week, Blaine was up here preaching and he had some fun with us as he read a list of names of the Old Testament nations and kingdoms. Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Parasites. Uh, he kind of got us stuck on that one. Read it. Read the Old Testament. I have to assume that people back then were, were just wired to think that way. All thought and uh, worldview was obsessed with and captivated with and took for granted the concept and the idea of kingdoms. One kingdom and another kingdom and one kingdom overtaking the other and which one was most powerful and which one do you belong to and in a way I feel like God was to blame. Read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and will make your name great. All very much kingdom terminology. It has a kingdom feel to it. And as you continue reading through the Old Testament, you will see it over and over. The kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Og, the kingdom of Zion, and the kingdom of Greece, and the Aramean kingdom, and of course, the kingdom of Israel, the most important one, the one that it's all about. Certainly, that was the opinion of the Jews back in their day. No question, our nation, 
Our kingdom is the most important one. Unfortunately, too much of the world still thinks that way. So we move into the New Testament and we have what we call the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, each of them slightly different in context, each one giving a slightly different version of the life of Jesus from a different perspective, each one written by a different author to a different audience. And the first of these is the book of Matthew, written by Matthew, one of the twelve disciples, and written primarily for the Jews. A group of people that was especially consumed with the idea of them being a kingdom. And not just any kingdom, but they, their bloodlines, they were God's chosen nation. They were the descendants of Abraham, the one God had chosen to become a great nation or kingdom. And so for them, for the Jews, it truly was all about their kingdom. And so because the book of Matthew was written primarily for the Jews, it uses imagery that the Jews can readily relate to. Perhaps we could also say a theology that the Jews needed to be challenged on. And so Matthew over and over uses the word kingdom more than any other of the Gospels. Over 50 times you're going to read the word in the book of Matthew. Many, many times it is connected with the word heaven. Kingdom of heaven. The way Matthew tells the story, one of the primary purposes of the coming of Jesus seems to have been to challenge their assumed definition of the kingdom of heaven. To challenge the people's assumed definition of the kingdom of God. Their assumed boundaries and qualifications for people to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. They assumed the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God obviously refers to the people of Israel. A group of people defined by bloodlines and laws and systems all of which were external measuring devices and judgment tools, it really wasn't that difficult for them. They kind of had it down to a science. They simply needed to consult Earl and his ancestry computer program. And I can tell you very quickly, if you are or if you are not a part of the kingdom of heaven, If you fit into a certain family tree, then you are in. If you don't fit, if you're not part of that family tree, then you're out. And then let me watch whether or not you do the right sacrifices and how often you attend the synagogue and how closely you follow the law. And I can tell you quickly also where you fit into the strata of that kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It was all about borders and boundaries and external measurements. Along comes Jesus and he challenges those assumptions and he works at redefining what exactly the kingdom of heaven is and who might actually all be a part of it. 
And you might be asking now, okay, that's cool, Darren, but where are you going with this? I hope you're still tracking with me. I think I've already pointed you in the direction of the book of Matthew. I think I've already pointed you in the direction that the book of Matthew is written for the Jews and that the concept or the word of kingdom is a very significant part of the book of Matthew. Now, another significant section of the book of Matthew is something that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, during the summer months, we want to take a look at the first little section of the Sermon on the Mount. They are called uh, the Beatitudes. I don't actually know exactly what that word means. I know it has the word attitudes in it, so it's got to be something connected with the way we think. We're going to build that during the next several months, during the summer months. We'll look at those Beatitudes, those different statements that Jesus makes when he begins this Sermon on the Mount about how people should live. You're going to find them in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. This morning, I want to build a little bit of a framework for this series of messages. I want to kind of set the stage. And so in some ways, it could actually be an intro message for the whole Sermon on the Mount um, recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But more specifically, I'm, I'm trying to set the stage or frame these Beatitudes. Try to get a grasp of where Jesus was coming from when he made these statements and, and where the people were coming from when they heard these statements that Jesus makes as he begins this Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, so big picture, uh, I've already said it, uh, it's important for you to catch, to remember, Jesus is working at redefining the definition of the kingdom of heaven. The assumed definition of what they saw as the kingdom of heaven. So because the sermon itself, the Beatitudes section, starts in chapter 5, and if we're going to set the stage and build a bit of a framework, then we need to start in chapter 4. So just before the recorded Beatitude statements in the whole Sermon on the Mount, um, go to, if you have your Bibles open, to uh, Matthew chapter 4, and I want to read a couple of verses for you in verses 12 to, uh, to 15. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, so we have a little bit of a problem here. Um, what is Jesus doing? What's he doing living among people who are not part of our kingdom? This is a problem. If we want to be, if you want to be someone in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to rise in the strata within the kingdom of heaven, then this is not a good way to do it. Matthew simply says, the light was now reaching all of these people also. The light was going, be let me read verse, 17, verse 16 and 17. 
The people living in, this follows the word Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. There's new revelation coming to the people that you all thought were outside of the kingdom. And then in verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Kingdom of heaven is near. And they think, ah, oh, okay, maybe. I mean, this doesn't seem like the right way to go about it. But maybe, just maybe, um, this might be the one that is going to lead our kingdom out of the dom domination of the Romans. See, the Jews had for years been living under Roman rule by this time, and they were convinced that there was a Messiah coming, a Savior was coming that would set the record straight, that would lead them back to a physical place of prominence as a powerful kingdom on the world stage. After all, we are chosen to be the kingdom of God. Surely we will end up on top again. And Jesus slowly but surely begins to challenge their assumptions about what the kingdom of heaven really is. Jump down to verse 23. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. What was that good news? Luke expands on that a little bit in chapter 4, verse 18, where he's quoting Isaiah chapter 61, where Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release for the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus was going about Galilee preaching the good news. And it says here, news about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. All kinds of people, not just Jewish people, but Gentile people were taking note. And somehow it seemed as though this message that Jesus was preaching, this good news about the kingdom, was for everybody. And the Gentiles could hardly believe it, and the Jews could hardly believe it. I mean... What was Jesus doing? This made no sense at all. Many of the diseases that Jesus was healing were diseases that effectively excluded the afflicted people from being part of normal life in society. And so their, their physical, their poor health meant that they didn't fit the physical elite kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. They were really a liability to that kingdom, and so they were, they were ostracized from that kingdom. They were the weak ones, and so they kind of needed to get out of the way. Uh, the kingdom, after all, is for the elite. The kingdom, after all, is for those who will rise in power, those who will become the strong knight of the world. That's the kingdom of God. 
the ones that, that have the right bloodlines, the ones that kept the law, the ones that neatly fell in line with the system, the ones that were clean and undefiled and healthy and wealthy certainly helped the cause. And along comes Jesus, and the people wonder, and they watch, and they begin to feel very uncomfortable. This is not going the way it was supposed to go. This is not the way the kingdom of heaven will become what it is supposed to be, a world power. And with his actions, Jesus is clearly beginning to challenge all of their assumed boundaries and definitions of the kingdom. And then in between those actions, Jesus launches into this sermon that's recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. A sermon in which he now... He's already challenging with his actions and a sermon with which he now challenges the people verbally. Their assumptions about the kingdom verbally. Many times, over and over, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, chapters 5, 6, and 7, um, you will read words that are something like this. Uh, you have heard that it was said. And then he gives an Old Testament law. Laws that were supposed to kind of be the ultimate. If you could live up to that law, then you were perfect. Laws that, if you could live up to them, would clearly indicate that you were part of the kingdom. Laws that gave evidence of your position and your status within that kingdom. But Jesus says, you have heard it said. Then he gives that Old Testament physical law and then he adds... But I tell you, and then Jesus raises the bar to a seemingly completely impossible level. And so all of the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like this. Uh, you have heard it said, don't kill people. I'm saying to you, don't even hate people. If you do, you are already guilty of murder. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm saying to you, don't even think about it. If you've thought about it, it's as if you've already done it. You've heard it said, love your enemy. I mean, love your neighbor. I'm saying to you, no, not just your neighbor. Love your enemy. You've heard it said, be willing to borrow to the needy. I'm saying to you, no. Give to the needy and don't expect anything in return. And the people are listening to, this is crazy. There's no way to live up to this. What is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to establish the fact that the boundaries and qualifications and measuring sticks of the real kingdom of heaven are not external. See, you can measure from the outside if someone has murdered someone else or not. Pretty simple. You can measure from the outside if someone has committed adultery or not. Pretty simple. As long as the qualifications for being in the kingdom are external, if the measuring sticks are all external, we can decide who is in and who is out, something that, by the way, I believe evangelical Christianity has been far too consumed with. But Jesus says, no, that is not my kingdom. My kingdom is perfect. And the people go, what? Yes, that's what Jesus is trying to get at. The kingdom of heaven is absolute perfection. 
perfect in action and perfect in thought and perfect in motivation, perfect in every way. And the people, come on, God. Really? Yes, really. And if you think about it for a moment, how could it be any different? If it is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, how could it be any different than perfect? A good attempt is, is, is nowhere close. Trying to do your best is, is nowhere close. The right action without the right motivation or the right frame of mind or the right thought process is nowhere close. Obviously, the kingdom of heaven is in every conceivable way an absolute, 100%, perfectly pure kingdom. You've heard it said, do this and do that, and that would be good enough to qualify you? Think again. Not even close. And as he speaks about all these impossible tasks, you finally come to chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus simply summarizes it and says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to be part of the kingdom? Not only in actions, but in your thinking, in your motivation, everything totally, completely pure and right and perfect. That is the kingdom of heaven. The real kingdom of heaven is perfection. The real kingdom of heaven, let me make just a few more comments about the kingdom of heaven. The real kingdom of heaven is not about doing. It's not about a system or an institution or a program. It's not about the external. Jesus builds a completely different set of boundaries for the kingdom of heaven than they assume to be the case. And as I look around, I, I have to assume that it, this is still a challenge for established Christianity in our world. Over and over and over, I dare say we, we want to ask God, so, so what do you want us to construct? What kind of an organization do you want us to put together? What should our church look like? What do you want? If you tell us what you want, God, we will set about and we will get it done. We will make it happen. We're pretty good. We've got a good group of people. We can do what you want us to do, God. We can build what you want us to build. We can construct a system that will fit your plan. Just tell us. Just tell us what it looks like, and we will go about doing it. When Jesus launches into this sermon, it's interesting because there is not a single institutional instruction in the entire thing. A little bit sobering for me as a pastor. If there is something institutional that ends up happening, it needs to be a byproduct. A byproduct of a group of people that are living in the kingdom and doing stuff together. And it just happens. 
Think about that. The real kingdom of heaven is something that God brings. The Bible speaks a lot about the kingdom of God. Uh, there's more examples in Matthew or in this Sermon on the Mount and the rest of Matthew, as I've already said. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, 33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew chapter 13, it says, Seven times the kingdom of heaven is like. And then it gives different word pictures. Uh, the Bible challenges us that the kingdom of heaven is something that we should pour our pursuit into where we want to pursue. And I dare say that's what our church is actually all about also. We want to somehow be involved in advancing His kingdom. I found it interesting. I looked at our EMC conference constitution and it says something like this. The purpose of the conference is to glorify God by building His kingdom. Sounds fantastic and noble and right and biblical. Seek first his kingdom, after all. We want to be about building his kingdom. Here's the problem, and you knew it was coming. When you take a look at the verbs, the action words that are used in relation to the kingdom, follow me closely here, there is a strange absence of verbs of human agency used in relation to the noun kingdom of God. Now, what am I saying? No verbs such as those that we would translate build or advance or cause to grow are ever used of our part in the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch that? No verbs such as to build or advance or cause to grow are ever used of humanity's part in the kingdom of heaven. This is strange. How can it be that what we most yearn for and are to seek first above all else is something that in Scripture we can never cause to happen? How can it be that what I yearn for most for myself and my people, our church as a pastor, is something that at the same time I myself am powerless to bring about? What the Bible does say is, the kingdom has come near, and in relation to it, humans repent, humans proclaim the good news of the kingdom, we can seek it, we can strive for it, we can enter it, we can see it, we can inherit it, we can inherit it, but the, according to the Bible, we cannot bring it, or build it, or advance it, or grow it. The kingdom of heaven is something that God brings. It's important for us to get that. One more. The real kingdom of heaven has its own identity. The kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God, is a noun. It is something all by itself. And when Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount and with the rest of his life about this kingdom, what he is saying is, this is what the kingdom of God does. This is what happens in the kingdom of heaven. Now I invite you to come close to the kingdom of God. Come close to the kingdom of heaven. Inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
A couple of weeks ago, we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and the love chapter, and we talked a little bit about what true love looks like. And we were reminded that the incredible, about all the incredible characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I told you that one of our human tendencies is we read a chapter like that and we say, what this means is, if I love, then these are the things that I will be doing. And I reminded you and I said, no, 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 no. What the chapter is saying is, these are things that love does. And now we're invited to be filled with love. These, love has an identity and these are things that love does. Now, I'm just using that as an illustration, as an example of what I'm saying here about the kingdom of heaven. This Sermon on the Mount, these are things that the kingdom of heaven does. This is how the kingdom of heaven operates. Now you are being invited to come close to the kingdom of heaven. You are being invited to have the kingdom of heaven live inside of you. You are invited to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let the character of this kingdom impact you, rub off on you, infiltrate you, saturate you. Let this kingdom live inside of you and ultimately control you, how you think and who you are, to the core of your identity. Next Sunday, while some of us are at Gem Lake, Jesse will open up the first beatitude. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And he will unpack what it speaks about. This kingdom of God thinking is the stage upon which Jesus begins this teaching. It is revolutionary for the people who assumed that the kingdom of God was something with external boundaries and measurements. The kingdom of God is inside of you. And each of the Beatitudes are attitudes inside of you, brought about by the kingdom of God that is living inside of you. And each of them has a huge impact on how you live. Amen.